We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Gabriella Coleman. She holds the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University and is a prominent scholar and uh, public intellectual on the subject of hackers and hacker cultures. The question that we'll be exploring is, what happened to, act, to hacktivism? What happened to hacktivism? Now, before we get into it, um, I just want to let you know that we're in my uh, classroom at CU Boulder. You all want to say hi? Hi. <laughs> the class is called Hacker Culture. Um, you might not be able to believe that this is a real class. It is. You can actually get credit for it. Um, and it's hard to imagine that that would be possible without the work of our guest today, uh, Gabriella Coleman, who's done more probably than anyone else to make the study of hackerdom respectable uh, here in the halls of the academy. Now, why should it be respectable? Uh, the premise of, of the class and uh, of our conversation, too, is that the cultures of hacking have made their way from marginal subcultures to becoming driving forces in the world as we know it. Facebook's headquarters is on a street called Hacker Way. Uh, a hack of the Democratic National Committee's emails helped elect the current US president. Free software produced by volunteer hackers around the world powers the infrastructure of the internet. Now, all of these legacies are, are powerful and also deeply ambivalent. There have been times when hackers have seemed motivated by noble values like transparency, truth, and justice. Um, and, but sometimes even the same people can end up maintaining and championing websites for white supremacists. They have come to serve authoritarian leaders around the world. Vladimir Putin uh, uh, has warmly rhapsodized hackers as merely artists. I encourage you to look up the fabulous video of him doing so. Gabriella Coleman has often uh, been uh, an articulator, explainer um, uh, of the values and virtues and, and dilemmas of hacker culture. Um, today we often see, I think, the dark sides of hacker cultures more, from the, the rise of the alt-right to uh, the abuses of surveillance and monopoly uh, by big tech companies that have uh, brought features of, of hacker cultures and values into their um, into the core of their values. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm interested in this conversation to see where events of recent years have, have, have brought uh, Coleman's thinking. So Biela, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure and thanks for that amazing introduction. Now, let, let's start from the top. Um, you're, you're an anthropologist by trade. Um, can you, can you uh, 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 take us through how you first encountered uh, hackers as an object of study? Sure. 
So uh, I was in graduate school in the late 1990s, and this was a period of time when anthropologists uh, weren't really studying technology in their own society so much, and I certainly wasn't either. I was a very traditional anthropologist that worked on religious healing in Guyana, South America. But I, I was intrigued by something I had learned from a programmer friend, and it was this. Um, my, my friend, who was a programmer, wrote free software. And he knew that I was interested in the fight against patents and medicines um, related to HIV drugs in South America. Patents made HIV drugs very, very expensive, and people were um, fighting the patents. So he told me about something called the copyleft, which is a suite of licenses that free software developers use to um, ensure that source code is made available to the world. And I was just perplexed. I was perplexed um, not simply by the use of the copyleft by free software hackers, but the fact that the hackers had invented a legal regime that was in use. I found that very counterintuitive. I thought they worked simply with technology. And so I started to kind of dive in, and that was my way into parts of the hacker world. And so these licenses enabled software to be turn, become, you know, go, go from becoming a kind of private good to a public good. A public good, exactly. And there was a philosophy as well around the importance of having access to knowledge as a way both to improve the technology, but also as a, as a way to sustain the community of hackers. And I like that. I was like, that's cool. You know, it's not a dog-eat-dog -dog world, uh, but a dog-play-dog -dog world um, where people came together to collaborate and, and build, you know, um, pieces of software that, as you had mentioned, is, is now the kind of um, plumbing of the software. And I wanted to both understand why they were committed to it, uh, why they were committed to it to such an extent that they were willing to forego copyrights and patents, which would enable them to make a lot of money on their software, and what it was that also allowed um, these groups of people to come together and collaborate uh, online. And so there's, when you hear the word hacker, there are so many different meanings. And, and even in your work, you know, you explore people who break into systems and people who build systems. Do, do you have a kind of mapping of what the different meanings of that word could be? So it's, um, it is really important when you come across either the word hack or the term hacker to get in in your head that there's no single either type of activity nor is there a single type of person either. That there is many different kind of ways to hack, some of which are based on kind of building systems, others which are based on breaking systems, sometimes for the purposes of hacktivism or to break systems to improve security, for example. Um, and there's also different kind of reference points for hacking. Um, and there's multiple origins uh, for different hacker communities. Um, and I have like created a distinct kind of mapping, uh, which I often phrase in terms of different genres or genealogies. Um, and they span again from piracy to maker communities, to security communities, to hacktivist communities. And um, there's some important differences. But it's also interesting to think about what they may share, right? 
and uh, this has also been a central part of my work. And so some of the things that hackers sometimes share are a love of certain operating systems. So many of the different hacker communities uh, are very attached to the Unix operating system and its variants. Not everyone in the hacker world, but that is one important lingua franca. Um, other ones are a kind of proclivity to be uh, crafty, what I call crafty, a willingness to break rules, bend rules, uh, to do what you're not supposed to do. And that could be used for various purposes, for political goods, um, could be done just to kind of show off to your peers, and can also be done um, in ways that are probably, you know, society might deem as problematic. But there is a kind of willingness to not accept the given. And I think that is one core definition of a hack, is you could do something different with a system. Let's talk about some of the particular communities that you've, say, for instance, you, you know, you had two books at rapid succession, one on, on uh, free software hackers building uh, Debian, a version of that uh, Unix operating system. And then in 2014, the year after, you had a book about anonymous people who were uh, engaged in political, somewhat political activity. Um, how, did, how did those connect to each other? Was there one and then the other? Uh, did they bleed together? Um, you know, it's interesting because in some ways Debian, which is a Unix operating system, and it's a project based on about a thousand developers who contribute to this system, could not be more different than Anonymous, which is a kind of global worldwide, or was a global worldwide kind of social movement. Um, and so far as Debian uh, was based on principles of transparency and, and access. It was very easy to meet people. Um, anonymous, on the other hand, people were anonymous. They were cloaked. Um, they were a little bit out of control, whereas Debian was like super nerdy um, and predictable, right? So in some ways, they're kind of polar opposites. And the movement Anonymous, which is a kind of hacktivist movement, also um, was a bit more participatory than Debian. With Debian, you had to have very strong technical chops, whereas with Anonymous, you had some hackers with very deep forms of technical expertise, but you know there's all sorts of media makers and others who could participate. Um, so there's a lot of differences, actually. And I didn't, they're, they're not, they were not really connected in terms of my research trajectory, and yet there are some interesting similarities as well, right? Um, both communities are really committed to forms of civil liberties, free speech, privacy, fighting surveillance, um, certain tools of communication, such as intranet relay chat, um, which are these chat rooms where geeks and hackers get together to congregate. Both Debian and Anonymous use those platforms, right? So um, there's, there's kind of infrastructures that connect them. There's a certain set of values that connect them. But the way they're socially organized is radically different. And a good reminder that geeks, hackers, nerds, um, you know, don't come in one package, right? They come packaged in, in very different sizes and shapes. So on the, on the hacktivist in particular, what are the markers of that kind of blend of activism and and hacker cultures? Well, I, 
I guess first it's important to say that there's different ways one can be a hacktivist. Um, so historically, you had artists who were part of groups like the Electronic Disturbance Theater, um, composed of professors and artists and hackers who were supporting, for example, Mexican revolutionaries. Um, and as part of that support, they would uh, send poetry to Mexican servers and also send so much traffic that they would crash the servers so people couldn't access those web pages. So that's considered an early form of hacktivism um, done by a group of activists, artists, and professors, right? And there's many other different instances in the, in the history of hackerdom. But anonymous, in some ways, really put hacktivism on the map um, insofar as they were very splashy, they were very provocative, many of them really hacked. They would hack governments, corporations, steal emails, publish them. Um, they would call attention to corruption. They would get involved in social movements like Occupy or the 2011 Arab social movements, right? They also proliferated. There were groups in Malaysia, Philippines, Australia, India, Dominican Republic, right? Um, so what had always existed in these little small pockets that were quite marginal under the moment of, um, or, or the period of time under which Anonymous became very popular between 2010 and 14, Anonymous really put itself on a map so that everyday people got to learn about hacktivism. Now, how, how much do you think that what gets called hacktivism is different from activism before that? I mean, how much is like uh, one of those de denial of service attacks uh, uh, where you flood a website with, with requests and shut it down different from the sit-in, the classic kind of uh, uh, sit at the lunch counter and, and shut down the restaurant? And what, should we be thinking about these things differently? So on the one hand, no, insofar as both are techniques often to get the news media to cover an issue, right? We, uh, both modalities require like the mainstream journalists to cover them so that you could learn about the issue that they're protesting. But then there are differences, you know, um, that do matter insofar as, for example, the legal pe penalties sometimes with computer type sit-ins are much stiffer and higher than if you did a virtual sit-in. And that's in part because of the computer laws, such as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in the United States, um, which is a very draconian law. And even though a DDoS attack, which is when you flood a server, is not a hack, you're not entering anywhere, you're not causing any damage, you are cutting off access, and you can be prosecuted under this law. And then, so some of the repercussions can be very stiff. The other difference is you can get a lot of people to participate, because it's virtual, it's global. And then thirdly, you can use technological hacks, like tools, where um, you create what's called a botnet to participate in the DDoS attack, and you can even infect people's computers, and they don't know that you're infecting their computer to contribute to that attack. 
So there's, a, there's levels of deception that are um, possible in the virtual sit-in that is much, much harder to pull off in a face-to-face sit-in. And in communities like this where people are masking their identity, say, say a little bit about what it, what it took to be a, an anthropologist uh, getting involved with them. What did you have to do in order to, in order to uh, learn about how they functioned? So one of the great things about studying anonymous was that at the time I studied them, you could find them. And they were again located in these chat rooms and I would log into the chat rooms. Uh, I used my name, I let people know who I was and I was, I, I'll never forget the day I revealed myself because I was kind of lurking for a little bit. Um, and then finally the day came where I was like, well, I better tell them, and I was very scared that my access would be cut off indefinitely. But they seemed to like be okay with me being there. And the reason for which, uh, the reason that kind of helps explain why they were okay with my presence is Anonymous really liked to get media attention. They liked people to write about them. And they saw me, I think, as a useful broker between their world and the journalistic world. Uh, because they definitely interacted with the media. They'd give interviews and these sorts of things, but you had to be anonymous. There was a very, very strong ethic not to use your real name, whereas I could use um, my real name, and I lent legitimacy to the group. So I traded that for access at some level. Um, and so I would, I would spend my days and nights in these rooms, and the different rooms were often attached to different operations, so if they were assisting Tunisians, there was a room for Tunisia. If they were assisting Occupy, there was a room for that. So I'd be in all these rooms, and I'd follow conversations, I would talk to people, I'd have private one-on-one -on -one discussions. And so my whole life was about being in these rooms and then following operations as they were planned there and as they unfolded on Twitter as well. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Gabriella Coleman, who uh, is an international expert on uh, hackers and hacker cultures. Uh, we'll be right back. This program is brought to you by the KGNU Listener members and by Quish Sustainable Wealth. Our spring fun drive runs from March 4th to the 15th, and as always, KGNU relies on our volunteers to answer the phones and take members' contributions. No experience necessary. Volunteers can expect catered meals and loads of fun. This is an exciting time to chat with our fans and supporters. And remember, KGNU can't do it without your help. Sign up for a phone shift at kgnu.org. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, again, we're speaking with Gabriella Coleman. She's an expert in hackers and hacker culture. She teaches at McGill University and is the author of uh, Coding Freedom and uh, Hacker, Ho Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy on Anonymous. Uh, Biala, can you uh, position us now? Like, where are we in the trajectory of these cultures that you've been following for so many years. Uh, what do you think are the major currents? Um, how have these cultures evolved uh, uh, today 
uh, as opposed to in, the, um, in some of the years past. So I'll emphasize a, a few elements because there's many moving pieces. Uh, when it comes to the sort of hardcore, semi-illegal hacktivism of Anonymous uh, that flourished between 2010-14, a lot of that activity has died down, in part because there, was, um, there were state crackdowns, a lot of people got arrested, um, and also like something like Anonymous wasn't so good at social reproduction. You know, as you know, Nathan, it, it takes a lot of effort and governance for online phenomena to reproduce itself over time. Anonymous wasn't well positioned to do that. Uh, that said, there's some interesting currents, one of which is I think one of the legacies of Anonymous is still well and alive, and it's the legacy of hacking into an organization to take the documents and emails and then leak them sometimes to journalists. And this phenomena, which I've called things like the hack leak combo, the public interest hack, um, was really popularized by Anonymous. It existed but barely before the Anonymous era. And it became a template by which other hacktivists and nation states started to adopt. So most famously, the hacktivist who has continued in that lineage is Phineas Fisher, who is either a group or an individual. And Phineas Fisher has, since the anonymous era, hacked into shady surveillance companies who sell spyware, for example, to dictatorial regimes, and um, hacked into these companies, like Hacking Team is, is one company, to take the emails to prove that is what they were doing. Um, and so this activity still exists. It's, it's very sporadic. And it's sporadic because it's safer when it's sporadic. When Anonymous was doing it, they were like doing a hack a week. They were like, hey, check us out. We're showing off. Hack, hack, look at us, look at us. Well, that's perfect for like um, getting the word out, but it's also perfect for uh, getting the authorities' interests in you. Whereas Phineas Fisher comes and goes, you know, once a year, every couple years. So it may not be as common, uh, but it's good for security. And Phineas, who has done some pretty major hack leaks, has never been caught. Nation states also started to adopt this format. So North Korea first did it with Sony, where they hacked Sony because they were not pleased with the film, what was it called, um, that made fun of Jim? The Interview? The Interview, <laughs> yes, which is a, yeah, thank you, hilarious movie. Um, so in kind of response to that, they hacked Sony, dumped the emails, and then we saw a kind of similar act with uh, the Democratic National Convention, they were ruthlessly hacked by Russians. And what was interesting was that the Russians were trying to um, pass off as hacktivists. So Guccifer 2.0 pretended he was an information transparency hacker, did a kind of poor job of it. And forensics has pointed to um, the Russian government. So it's interesting that tactic lives on 
even though Anonymous is gone. Yeah, it's striking. I mean, you mentioned hacking team, for instance. You know, like a few years ago, you'd hear the term, you'd hear a name like that, and you'd think, oh, it's another of these shady groups. Hacking team is an Italian company that sells its services to governments around the world. Exactly. And there's, you know, even, you know, if you look at the last 30, 40 years of the cultures and political economy of hacking, again, you have very different practices. You have those who are consumer advocates fighting for your security. You have those working on behalf of corporations who are doing really dodgy things. You have those like free software activists who are sort of saying, hey, knowledge should be free. You have the hardcore hacktivists on the left. You know, it's, it is a, a, a huge mix. And during one time, one type might be more visible or might have more impact. But any one time, they're kind of all existing. Um, and then different conditions, again, um, make one type more impactful or more visible than another type. And it, it does seem striking, though, that there's this, there's kind of a market for these skills and practices and, and even like sensibilities that there wasn't before. I mean, in the an anonymous heyday, you know, Fox News would, would you know, broadcast these incredible kind of like presentations of this group as this terrorist squad, right? You know, the hacker could be easily classified as this kind of inherently negative thing. And then, you know, the, the kind of political champion of Fox News, Donald Trump, during the, during the presidential debates in 2016, kind of, um, uh, kind of almost pays tribute to the hacker. And now uh, you, you have governments kind of embracing not just like hackers to protect them, but actually hackers as a weapon of war and uh, as a kind of, um, not only an offensive practice, um, but also a defensive one, where on the other side of the hacker spectrum, you know, you have European governments increasingly um, trying to turn away from using US software, so they're, so they're investing in open source hacker cultures to, to develop software that's independent of the kind of US companies. So it, it, like, what is it, what changes when there's this market for these practices that previously, you know, existed outside of markets? I would say the markets existed for a long time and that there's cycles, right? So, I mean, just to give one example, the Homebrew Club was an informal association of hacker types in Silicon Valley who came together to trade information about hardware um, two of the most famous hackers who participated were Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. You might have especially heard of Steve Jobs, the listeners. Um, and interestingly enough, for those that may not know, Steve Jobs and um, Wozniak were also phone freaks, which were the proto-hackers who broke into phone systems, right? And so Homebrew Club started off as an association of sharing. Let's share information. They also shared basic the computer program made by Bill Gates and Paul Allen and Bill Gates got very angry and wrote a letter to the hobbyists being like, you're, you're violating my copyrights. And so here were these homebrew hobbyists who, you know, were sharing information. They were exchanging information that was otherwise proprietary. But what happened? There was a huge market for the PC and many of those individuals started to kind of form companies like Apple Right, so from that kind of hacker, um, you know, soup uh, 
became, that was very autonomous, that was not about um, a market became a market. And uh, I think that cycle just exists in all sorts of areas and places and will probably continue to exist as a cycle. I mean, what, what generates kind of the new phases of the cycle, do you think? I mean, it, do, do you, um, is it a response to a kind of an injustice? Uh, is it something that is just kind of a natural feature of some of these technological systems? It's, it's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both, and a third factor we'll call regionalism for now. But, you know, one of the things or one of the ways I've understood hacking is through the angle of tricksterism, where, again, with tricksterism, um, trickster figures are often um, wily creatures who are defying borders and boundaries and often creating something new by defying borders and, and boundaries. And I do think that there's something about the computer and software in particular, which lends itself towards cunning, tricksterism, making, breaking. So there is something about the material affordance. And it's not simply with computers. You know, the telegraph and the phone system were also equally perfect for that, especially because they're network technologies where you could alter the system but also connect with other people as you alter the system, right? So that is one element. Then I think hacker cultures kind of grew, and then the knowledge around hacking, the commitment to making and breaking um, became a tradition in its own right and gets passed on uh, to future generations. And it does, through, does so through their zines, their writing, their, their conferences, right? Um, so that's important. And then finally, I mean, the United States in particular, a lot of the movements that start off being autonomous and independent quickly become capitalized, right? That's what you see. You even saw that with free software. Whereas in places like Spain, Italy, or Germany, which are hotbeds for really interesting forms of hacker politics and making, you tend to see hacker interventions remain a little bit more in the civic sphere, in the political sphere, right? And that's also because these countries have different political cultures than the United States. But we tend to know a little bit more about the American kind of side of hacking, just because those are the histories that have been told. And I'm as much at fault. Um, but it looks very different from those countries as well. And just to take one example of one of those cycles, you know, uh, Anonymous emerged out of these chat rooms, 4chan, uh, uh, these anonymous chat rooms uh, that are kind of uh, a kind of cesspool of the internet, you know, where people are posting all sorts of uh, crazy stuff, and then it, it formed into a kind of identity, into, into a uh, culture of its own. And some of those same spaces have also kind of gave rise to this more recent resurgence of the of a new kind of right formation and and particular support of of uh, uh, then candidate Trump and you know images like Pepe the Frog and the and these kind of um, uh, and this kind of culture around um, uh, around a kind of new racism they they emerge from similar spaces how do you look at those 
two cycles is related to each other. I mean, are these are these tied because of that relationship, or or uh, are these really um, are these distinct formations? They're, I would say they're more distinct. Um, that's the argument I hope to give tonight in the talk I'm giving. Even though anonymous, and let's call them the anonymous alt-right, came from the same image boards. Um, but anonymous, on the one hand, veered away from a culture of trickery, misogyny, and racism that then hooked into a kind of liberal left politics. Whereas then, um, post-2014, people participating in those image boards veered towards the far right. So the question is, how did that happen? And it's, a, it's actually a fairly complicated story um, where you really have to follow what was going on both on the boards and you also have to follow on what's going on politically outside of the boards. And so I can't give like the deep answer right now but to point to what was going on politically outside the boards, just to give you a sense of why these things matter, I'll just point to two things. When Anonymous started to form into kind of a hacktivist phenomena, what else was going on? WikiLeaks, which was a clearinghouse or still is a clearinghouse for big leaks, very much identified with the hacker world. You had leaks by Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, so the, the cultural atmosphere um, was such that Anonymous could link into existing formations. And they also linked into big social movements that were going on and very visible in 2010, 11, and 12. In the 2014 world, um, you sort of have the bubblings of online alt-right formations, and a kind of critical event around this was Gamergate, uh, which was a big brouhaha over ethics in journalism, which became a kind of cover for certain trolls and misogynists to attack um, identity politics as they were forming in games. And that became a very important political funnel for apolitical trolls to be funneled into the far right. And that moment kind of politicized a group of people who were very well positioned to be politicized. But if Gamergate hadn't happened, who knows what would have happened, right? So you have to follow these formations in history and time in order to kind of explain why they unfold in the ways that they do, right? It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's kind of part of the answer. Once again, you're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're speaking with Gabriella Coleman, a professor at McGill University and an expert in cultures of hacking and hackers. We'll be right back. Among the topics on Connections this Friday morning, a proposal that the state of Colorado create an award to recognize and honor individuals who perform their duties as public servants in accordance with established laws, rules, and norms, despite threats to their careers or their well-being. A couple of obvious candidates for the award would be Alexander Vindman and Marie Ivanovich. Join Liz Lane, Claudia Craig, Jim Banks, and me, Joel Edelstein, 
on Connections, Friday morning at 8.30 here on KGNU. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month we're speaking with Gabriella Coleman, a professor at McGill University, a world expert on uh, hackers and hacker culture. We're exploring the question of what happened to hacktivism. We have uh, a question. We're here at uh, uh, CU Boulder in my class, uh, and uh, we have a question from, from one of my students. Hi, Gabriella. Um, my name is Jessica, and I was just wondering what got you into hacking and hacktivism, and what, at what point did you know that this was something you wanted to work on forever? Sure. Well, maybe I'll talk a little bit about how I got to Anonymous, because it's, it's a fun story. So I was a postdoc at University of Alberta, and uh, Edmonton, unlike Boulder, is actually freezing between October and May. There's lots of snow. And I, I found out that the largest Scientology archives in the world were at University of Alberta. And during an earlier phase of research, I found out that a lot of hackers hated Scientology and got into fights with Scientology over trademark and copyright law. So I decided to do an archival project looking at those battles from the 1990s between hackers and Scientology. And it was great because Scientology is like the polar opposite of the hacker world. It's Scientology is about um, science that's fake and technology that doesn't work, whereas hackers like really care about science and technology. It's a, it's a very proprietary religion. A lot of hackers are into opening knowledge up. So it's like the bizarro world of, of hacking. So I did this project, and I was very secretive about it because Scientology went after academics and critics. A couple of years later, something by the name of Anonymous starts to attack the Church of Scientology after the Church of Scientology threatens journalists with lawsuits after a video of Tom Cruise, who's like the world's most famous Scientologist, uh, was leaked to the internet. And at that time, Anonymous were trolls, pranksters, and they just decided to troll the heck out of the Church of Scientology. And since I already had a project on Scientology and hackers, I figured, oh, here is a new phase of a kind of geek hate towards Scientology. So that I just went down that rabbit hole. And a few years later, um, it kind of exploded into this worldwide movement. And I, I was very intrigued as to why a bunch of like, um, Oh, they weren't only young people, actually. Anonymous attracted a, a diverse lot of people, but why people were willing to en engage in often very kind of risky forms of political action. So it was a bit of an accident. Sometimes you just have to follow interesting things down a rabbit hole, and it will lead to great places. Earlier you mentioned, um, I, didn't, I couldn't fully understand if you said Unix or Linux, because I've heard of Linux before. And I was wondering what the difference between them was. That's a great question. So Unix is an operating system that was created by AT&T Bell Labs. Is that right? And what's interesting is that, well, actually, I mean, if we want to get really deep, uh, 
and show a little bit of hacker humor. So before Unix, there was something called Multics. And Multics was created at AT&T Lab. And it was an operating system that uh, was going to be, I think the project was going to be canceled. And the developers behind it um, decided to kind of make it smaller, cut it down. Um, and they called it Unix in reference to castrated males. You know, Unix um, is a reference to castrated males because they had castrated Multics into a smaller, more beautiful operating system. Um, and for reasons I won't get into, people started to get access to the source code. And it's a very, very powerful operating system that the science fiction writer Neil Stevenson has described as the Gilgamesh of hacker culture. Because while it's one paradigm, it could be remade into different flavors. And there's hundreds of different flavors of Unix. What's interesting is that people had access to the source code, but it's still kind of illegal. And Linux, in part, was so popular because it was a free software version of Unix that people could fully, fully access and it helped the Unix tradition live on. Um, so the short answer is Linux is a version of Unix and there's many, many different versions of Unix. Um, that again is an operating system that's beloved by hackers because it, it's very powerful, takes a long time to learn. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's central, I think, to understanding both the politics and history of computer hacking. And what's interesting too was when he started to make it, he didn't think it was going to be a big and powerful operating system. He was just doing it as a hobby. But at the time, people were discussing on mailing lists. And he posted on a mailing list saying, hey, if someone wants to contribute anything, I'd be open to it. And all these people started to contribute fixes and patches. And next thing you know, um, it went from like a tiny hobby to an operating system that is, again, central to many companies and, and web operations today. So in regards to your article, what is your like, favorite or most interesting um, public interest hack you've studied? That's a great question. So just to reiterate, um, what I've termed a public interest hack is one of these hacks where uh, hackers break into a company, a government, take information, put it online, often to get public interest in it. That doesn't mean it's in the public interest, but it can be. Uh, you know, I think probably my favorite one <laughs> is what I often refer to as like the mothership one, which was one done by Anonymous against a company called H.B. Gary. And the reason why I like it is because when these anonymous hackers targeted this security firm, they did so for revenge. One of the employees in the security firm, uh, Aaron Barr, had supposedly infiltrated Anonymous, and he was going to go to the FBI with people's names. And there was a big article published about it in the Financial Times. And it's true, the names were wrong. 
And so Anonymous, as revenge, over the course of one evening, broke into H.B. Gary, took the emails, posted them online, deleted everything in the company. Um, they also got into like H.B. Gary's, I think, iPad, wiped it out. And um, it was sort of like, don't mess with Anonymous. But what was interesting was the information in the emails, uh, the information was very important because it looked like, well, it didn't look like, H.B. Gary had a proposal to discredit WikiLeaks in part by spreading disinformation um, and smearing the name of credible journalists like Glenn Greenwald. So it revealed really shady things um, that the company was up to which is a problem, like you, you shouldn't be able to do that, right? And that kind of helped inspire the movement towards, you know, maybe we can sort of whistleblow using this tactic. So to me, that's a really interesting example because it was accidental, but then created the groundwork for what became a more directed practice afterwards. Are most of the hackers, like in big hacker groups like Anonymous, are they doing this as like a hobby? Or do they, do they work nine to five jobs and then they go home and they're like hacking away? Or are there people who are like devoting all their time to this? Great question. In Anonymous, it was variable. There were some people who uh, had jobs in engineering companies, although some of those people were not involved in the illegal stuff. I think because maybe the stakes were too high. Um, whereas the people who were involved in the illegal hacking, many of them were students. <laughs> in fact, I'll tell one funny story where one of the hackers uh, who was a student at Trinity College in Dublin, one of the best universities in the world, he kind of vanished for a month. <laughs> and later on, you know, when he got arrested, he was like, yeah, I had finals. Like, I had to not hack in order to pass my chemistry classes, right? So a lot of these guys were, were young students. And you know, as, as students, they had flexibility. A couple of other people were actually unemployed. Others were sort of um, hardcore hacktivists and activists who made a little bit of money here and there, but they were kind of dedicating their time to anonymous. When it comes to kind of other types of hacking, like maybe free software development or other projects, people do tend to have day jobs. And if they're lucky, they get to hack on what they also do on the side. But sometimes they're doing something on the side and they're also working at Google or Amazon and then work on projects that are actually like fighting those very companies as well. Um, and I, I do see that quite a bit too, in the kind of hacker world. So most of the hacks that Anonymous and those organizations have done have been for information. Um, seeing that everything is starting to become Wi-Fi enabled, do you ever see that these hacks will um, be targeted towards machines to cause damage or harm? I mean, there's always been that danger um, where people who can hack into kind of network computers can absolutely engage in sabotage of different sorts. And there's some hackers who are part of the security industry, and I've recently started to study them too, do everything possible to prevent that. And they're, they're, they were former black hats. They, they formally broke into systems. 
Um, in fact, there is a very famous group out of Denver that apparently owned and pwned the University of Colorado systems for over a decade. These black hat hackers in the 90s took care of these systems. They were entering them because they wanted to learn, um, but they didn't want to dis destroy them or hurt them. And then those hackers became security professionals to try to prevent the malicious hackers from doing that. Now, who are the types of people that want to engage in sabotage, let's just say? There's, there's a couple. One are nation states who um, will want to, for example, disable a nuclear reactor in Iran with something called Stuxnet. And it's a piece of technology that was developed by the Israeli government and the US governments and requires both sophisticated technology to stop uh, the uranium enrichment, but you also have to break into systems or get into the systems. And then you do have hacktivists who will also want to engage in sabotage as well. And so one of the most famous anonymous hackers, Jeremy Hammond, who's still in jail, was, uh, is a very left-leaning hacker. And whenever he would break into a place, he would take the emails and then delete the files as well because he wanted to cause harm to these companies. You don't see that very often because the risks are very high if you get caught, right? But certainly anyone who can hack into a place can also cause uh, destruction. Generally, the hacktivists who do that just want to get the emails, but every once in a while, whether it's a nation state or one type of hacktivist might go further than simply retrieving information. So for me to do my research, because uh, I couldn't understand people, <laughs> I did have to take a couple programming classes and a system administration class as well, because I just, couldn't follow conversations. And so I had to definitely expose myself in a more formal way. Uh, and I also even took some law classes. I took patent law and computer law because the world of hacking and free software interfaces with the law so much. Um, I have not hacked. <laughs> and I wouldn't admit it if I did. <laughs> uh, I am fascinated by people who decide to push boundaries and break the law, uh, whether they're hackers or not. I mean, I am fascinated by that. I mean, as uh, <laughs> an exercise, I, in the past, have had my students break a rule in public. And go try it. It's incredibly hard to do. And, and many of my students would come back and be like, I sat next to a stranger at a cafe. And I was like, oh, please. <laughs> like, that's hardly breaking a rule because it's so hard to do. You know what I mean? So I am kind of fascinated about this, the kind of conditions that lead people not to accept the given and go somewhere else. And that, that is, I think, one of the reasons why I've kind of constantly returned to the hacker world. Um, because you do see quite a bit of that willingness to break rules, boundaries, the given, um, and there's social conditions that kind of help explain that. So, but I don't do it as much as, <laughs> as they do. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Gabriella Coleman, 
the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University. We've been exploring the question of what happened to activism. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. You've been in my class called Hacker Culture today. Uh, Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. Uh, Med Lab fellow Laura Daly was our engineer today. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. If you liked what you've heard, please spread the word about the show and consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month. Thank you.